The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, May 26th at California Votes, a 2022 election preview, which was hosted by Capital Weekly. Today's podcast features a recording of our keynote discussion between two political data analysts who will probably be familiar to our regular listeners, Paul Mitchell of Political Data Incorporated and Matt Rexroad of Redistricting Insights. And they are going to talk about what to look for in the upcoming June 7th California primary. California Votes, a 2022 election preview, was presented as part of Capital Weekly's California Conference Series. Support for California Votes was provided by the Coalition for Safe Responsible Gaming, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, and California Professional Firefighters. Uh, greetings, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us uh, in the keynote section of our conference today. And we have a twofer, believe it or not. We have Matt Rexroad and Paul Mitchell. Uh, Matt has been working on redistricting issues for years. He formerly worked in the Capitol. He's the CEO of Strategy Insights, uh, and he was co-founder of Meridian, uh, Meridian Pacific, which was well-known here. He also is an attorney. We don't necessarily hold that against him, but um, he also has some insight as a former public official. We don't have many of those on these issues when we talk about stuff like this uh, at our conferences. So, Matt, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thanks, John. And the other end of the bookend there is Paul Mitchell, who's the vice president of Political Data Inc., and he's the owner of Redistricting Partners, and he's known around the country as a uh, specialist in redistricting public advice, political strategy, uh, data uh, data crunching, just about everything that involves politics. And the rest of this conference today deals with November. This one. We hope we'll get we'll get some insight into what's happening in the June primary, which we're already voting in right now. I've actually voted already, by the way, which is amazing for me. So thank you both for coming. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Matt. And uh, I'll turn this discussion over to you. I'm going to back out unless I have a burning question and can interrupt. But we'll let you guys take it from here. So thank you so much. Thanks, John. So, Paul, you want to kick this off and give some open, opening thoughts on what you see happening between now and two weeks from now? Sure. Um, well, first off, uh, whenever we talk about elections, I think it's always good to kind of frame uh, this particular election, uh, not just within like what's on the ballot now and what we're seeing in the immediate like kind of current time frame, but going back to kind of like what are the reforms that have happened in California that have set up this election to be what it will be like. And and California's gone through a ton of changes since, you know, 2010 or so uh, that helped shape what we're going to see in this election, both in the primary and the general. One of the biggest, most obvious ones is that the state has a top two primary, the open primary system. And I think we'll probably end up discussing a little bit about how that's being gamed now, how the perceptions of it are different now than they were like pre-2012. I remember in 2012, there was a guy who's a current assembly member who sat with me at Temple at coffee and his consultant was trying to tell him to run as an independent. 
And I was like, nah, I don't know. I don't know. And like 30 candidates ran as independents because they thought that was like the magic secret sauce. But the open primary has played out a lot differently than a lot of these folks believed and a lot differently than I think the proponents of it believed. We had changes of term limits, which created these kind of big waves of 12 year, uh, you know, expected periods of time that people would be in office in one house rather than kind of jumping from house to house, which Matt, when you and I were working in the Capitol, that was a big thing. Like every assembly member knew what assembly member they were running against for state Senate. And that nested nested seats too. So you knew exactly who you were running against. Yep. Um, We've had changes to voter registration. So not only online voter registration, but the DMV registration, the change to like a negative checkoff system for DMV registration. And people don't realize it, but we have pretty much automatic voter registration. When I just moved, I did my national change of address and my voter registration was automatically renewed with a new address. And people don't realize that as much. We used to see these spikes of like a million or two million voter registrations right before elections. And we don't even see those spikes anymore. In fact, since 2018, 14 million of the state's 22 million voters have registered or re-registered in just that period of time. It's, it's just crazy the, the churn of our voter file, which changes who's registered, who might vote. The Voter's Choice Act, now we're mailing everybody ballots. Uh, a lot of counties did this voluntarily, then the state imposed it statewide, that everybody's getting mailed a ballot. When they get their ballots, they don't have to put postage on them anymore. In fact, they don't really need to mail them in. They can wait for somebody to come knock on their door, their friendly campaign person collecting ballots. Um, If they turn in a ballot and they forget to sign it, nowadays, they fix that. They contact voters and and do all that. So there's just tons of, you don't even need to mail it and make sure it lands at the registrars on election day like it used to be. Uh, Now, as long as it's postmarked by election day, it's legal. Um, Then we have redistricting reform uh, statewide and locally. Um, We have more districts because of the California Voting Rights Act. So in the last 10 years, more than any other period uh, that I've seen in California history, we have reformed our election system and we have to understand all those elements to understand kind of where we are today. The big question that we get a lot is turnout. Like what's turnout going to be? Um, historically, gubernatorial voter election cycles are uh, the lowest turnout. And right before we got on, Matt, you were talking about the turnout percentages that you looked up for the primary in 2014 and 2018. And what were those again? Yeah, in 2014, I've got a turnout. That would, that would have been the time that Jerry Brown was running for his second term. So kind of a snoozer election. And that was 25% in the primary. In 2018, it was 37%. Yeah. So that is crazy low turnout. And a couple of things to note about that kind of turnout, like 25%, is that when turnout drops, it doesn't drop uniformly. You've got some voters who are like super high turnout, you know, affluent white homeowners. And then you've got other voters that are lower turnout, renters, minorities, younger people. And when turnout drops, it kind of drops like this. Like the high turnout voters are still going to be high turnout, but you're going to have an electorate that looks very different. So that's one thing. On that point, though, I I was going to bring up, I don't mean to cut you off, but a lot of people think that that turnout is kind of uniform throughout the state. Right. And it's just not. That's a statewide average. And so we have some elections for the assembly in eastern Los Angeles in particular, where if the turnout average is 25 percent, 
it may be like 15% there, just incredibly low and, and much higher still in parts of the Bay Area and the wealthier areas. And so you may see an assembly member like a, um, uh, trying to think of a inner city assembly member um, that, that might win with 15,000 votes. And meanwhile, up on the North Coast, you might have somebody get 100,000 votes get elected to the assembly. Yeah. And that what's crazy about that is that um, there's, like you said, there's these regional or county by county differences. And if you look at our statewide office holders, lots of Northern California statewide office holders and very few from L.A. And part of that is because L.A. County is a uh, is a third larger than the Bay Area counties combined in terms of total registration. But it's a quarter lower than the Bay Area counties in terms of turnout in a primary election. The LA turnout is the part that drops much more than Northern California with the history of vote by mail, more high propensity voters, and LA County with a lot more renters, a lot more Latinos, a lot more young people. Um, so you see these drops. The other thing is that we talk about turnout percentage, and it's kind of a failing measurement in some ways because uh, when I said we've had all this new voter registration, turnout is a fraction. It's, a, it's the numerator is who voted and the denominator is who's registered. And we've had this like denominator inflation. We've gone from you know, 17 million voters in 2014, 19 million voters in 2018 to 22 million voters now. So we could have 30% turnout in California and have 2.2 million more voters than we had in 2014. So the, the turnout in 2014 was only, I think, 6.6 .6 million. Um, or I might have that wrong. It might be 4.7 million, 6.6 .6 million for this time. But the, the point being that the turnout percentage, we shouldn't expect turnout to be higher percentages when we have this denominator that's growing so rapidly. And that denominator is being filled up with a lot of people who are low to, potentially lower turnout. Um, the other thing, and I'll get my spiel over and then we can kick off and you can kind of throw in your thoughts. Um, turnout and these mechanical elements is one side of it. The other element of turnout is enthusiasm. So you can have all the, the mechanical pieces in place to encourage high turnout, but if voters don't see things that they care about, then it's unlikely you're gonna get real high turnout. It's kind of like that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And in this election, I'd say you have not a lot to really get excited about. Um, first off, we've taken ballot measures off the primaries, largely because of that skewed electorate, not wanting to have ballot measures on a, on a ballot with such low voter participation from some groups. Uh, we have a very uninteresting statewide ballot. Um, you know, I think uh, the- Gavin Newsom's on the phone. He'd like to talk to you. It's a very, un well, <laughs> yeah, he can talk to me, but I mean, if he can convince voters that Brian Dolly is a real challenger, um, I'd be surprised. Uh, the, the statewide ballot has very few opportunities for real competitive races that voters are going to care about. Um, post redistricting, there's a lot of more open seats, but not a lot where the primary seems to be really the deciding factor. Um, the, uh, LA city mayor's race is probably the most interesting thing on the entire statewide ballot. 
And uh, so in that way, there might not be a lot of kind of real enthusiasm for voting. Um, looking forward to the general and the enthusiasm side right now, or maybe like a few weeks ago, you had an environment with, you know, increasing gas prices, inflation, Biden's numbers just really tanking. And so real bad environment for Democrats. Uh, the catch was back then I was doing presentations like this and I'd say, watch the Supreme Court. Um, three things before the Supreme Court right now. One could weaken the ability for states to regulate guns. One has to do with, remember that gay baker case where the baker didn't want to make cakes for gay couples. Now there's a web designer that doesn't want to make websites for gay couples. And so we could have a decision from the Supreme Court on that. And then of course the Roe v. Wade decision uh, that we're expecting anytime here soon, those kinds of things could change that enthusiasm metric on the democratic side. Um, it could, uh, change the landscape for November. In one example of this, I've been working with Capital Weekly on polling uh, prior to this election. And one of the things we asked was, what are your top three issues? And the top three issues had been uh, crime, inflation, uh, the economy. And uh, when we actually looked at uh, breaking that out, we saw that after the leaked decision came out, for Democrats, abortion skyrocketed up to number one. For Republicans, abortion was still around number five. So it, what it meant was this kind of asymmetric kind of polarization on an issue where Democrats might, especially after the decision comes out and it's real, um, really find reasons to come out and vote uh, in November that aren't really apparent now. And uh, honestly, you know, it's it's unknown what we're going to be like, what this, the country is going to be like and what the state's going to be like in terms of where voters are at in six months. Um, the one thing I'll leave with is that we think about November and that's pretty soon and it's pretty obvious given where we're at right now, like where things might break. Um, but six months ago, uh, you know, we didn't have people dying of Omicron six months ago in the United States. Larry Elder was potentially governor uh, six months ago. Um, a lot of things have changed since then. And I think a lot of things will change between now and the November election. Uh, can I just jump in for one second? Uh, I forgot to mention, Tim reminded me, I forgot to mention that people who want to ask questions can go ahead and click on the Q&A tab and our panelists will see them. Okay, I'll disappear right now. Okay, just some um, thoughts from me. And Paul covered uh, a lot of many of the same topics that that I wanted to go over. But in regards to turnout, um, so there is a huge difference around the state, and I kind of uh, put that into the middle of his question. Um, and I do completely agree with him about the um, the difference of enthusiasm level among Republicans and Democrats. And so we see that in our polling in terms of who's really fired up and who's not. I've been watching um, largely from doing these presentations with Paul, um, some of the like abortion decisions and how that might impact um, turnout in some of these primaries. And so I've been keeping an eye on, you know, Virginia and Ohio and Georgia, and I haven't seen a huge leap this time, not to say it's not going to exist in November, but I would have expected to see some of that with the close proximity to um, 
the kind of release and the marches and everything else. And so far, I haven't seen a lot of tangible evidence in that, but I think we've got some more primaries and we'll see how it impacts California. Maybe Paul has some different thoughts about that from what he's seen around the state, but so far I haven't seen that. Um, and then a lot of uh, things have changed. Not only Paul likes to talk about shaking up the ant farm from 10 years ago, but um, also um, 20 years ago, um, Republicans always voted absentee. And as the absentee ballots would be counted after the election, we'd watch Republicans just be picking up votes, you know, the whole time uh, as, as absentees closed. And now it's almost exactly the opposite. And I'm, I may be like some of you where you get Paul's or PDI's updates every morning about different turnout, um, how many ballots have been processed by the different counties. And, you know, Democrats are way in front because now suddenly, and I believe it's probably as a result of former President Trump, um, Republicans have decided, no, they need to vote on Election Day now or turn their ballot in at the last possible moment. So, when you know, my clients are calling to be upset, saying there's this huge Democratic wave happening in Shasta County. Um, no, that's not really the case. It'll, it'll eventually even out. And, and over time, that will um, that will balance out. But it's still very different than what we dealt with 20 years ago in California, where Republicans always did well in absentee and they don't so much anymore. Um, the other thing I would throw out is, as I'm looking around the state at a lot of these different offices, redistricting oftentimes provides an opportunity for state legislators to take their dream shot about running for Congress. And we have several legislators who are in the process of doing that right now. You have Christina Garcia down in that Long Beach seat. You've got Adam Gray. You've got Kevin Kiley and others. And what oftentimes is really tough for them is the, um, the difficulty of raising money at the federal level. There's a, just a different set of rules. And oftentimes people come to Sacramento and they become very accustomed to raising third house money. And I was you know, really surprised to see, you know, Christina Garcia has only raised you know, $215,000 running for Congress. You know, Robert Garcia is just cleaning her clock down there in, in the Long Beach area for that seat for a whole bunch of different reasons. Kylie's raised quite a bit of money, but oftentimes it's really challenging for legislators to take that next step and raise money um, from the federal, uh, under the federal rules. And then finally, I, I well, two other issues. One is, um, Paul hinted at this as a result of the top two primary, but what I'm really interested in seeing around the state is the final outcome regarding how much Democrats are able to pick and choose which Republican they're gonna be running against in November. And so the top two creates this dynamic where, um, especially in seats that are heavily, heavily Democratic, um, where um, we're likely gonna get two Democrats running against each other in the general, in the runoff in, in November. And so you see places like um, here in Sacramento where you have um, Cooley who's trying to not run against Josh Hoover. He'd rather run against the Proud Boy guy. So he's sending out this mail basically with you know Cooley on it and the Proud Boy guy um, trying to um, bump up the Proud Boy uh, candidate because he doesn't want to run against Josh Hoover. The Bonta campaign is doing the same thing uh, with Eric Early and, and pushing that out there. And there's some other examples around the state, probably one of the better ads I see out there right now is the House Majority Pack um, blasting um, David Valadeo on, on Fox News and, and, and bumping up his opponent, Chris Mathias, who was a Fresno City Council member, um, basically trying to uh, pick the Republican that they're going to be able to run against in the general election. And so the top two has manifestations in the strategies that different people are using to run these races. And we even see like people like Brad Sherman doing the same thing down in the San Fernando Valley, and it's, it's playing out kind of all over the state. Um, finally, Paul was talking about some of the issues about um, 
different issues around the state regarding people's priorities. And there are some differences around the state. And the other, at the local level, what I'm seeing is, and it has been for the last five years, homelessness is far and away the most important local issue. It's off the charts. When, when you ask people what's the most important issue for Sacramento or San Jose or LA, whatever. And at the statewide level, at least what I'm seeing is Democrats and Republicans are looking at this entirely differently. They look at the state and how things are going, right track, wrong track, but also in terms of issues. Um, I see inflation and affordability issues being the primary concern among Republicans. And I, while I see it being important to Democrats, more social issues and environmental issues are much more important to them now than ever before. And COVID even shows up on my Democratic crosstabs, but it doesn't even appear on the Republican crosstab uh, for whatever reason. And so we really are more and more um, getting to the point where you have at least two different parts of California. And I understand the Democratic part is far larger in terms of quantity than the Republicans, but they view the state entirely differently uh, in, the, in the urban core versus the rural parts of California or even the Central Valley. So um, those are kind of my opening comments. And then actually I saw on the, in the q and I saw um, my friend Tom Getty asked a question about um, the ballot harvesting question. And I would just respond on that to say that similar to the way I view absentee ballots, it is ingrained in the core of my being that I never touch anyone else's ballot. And I know that that's not the, um, I know that's probably not playing the right way by the rules right now, but I don't wanna touch Paul's ballot. I don't wanna change his ballot. I don't wanna go anywhere near it. And I'm not a big believer that there were huge ballot harvesting efforts in the last two elections. I know there's a lot of conspiracy theories out there from the, from, from the right wing portions of the Republican party. But um, I just have to believe there would be greater evidence of ballot harvesting in California, huge operations that I just don't see evidence of that um, significantly throughout California, even over the last two elections. But it certainly is allowed. And there is some difference of opinion in regards to um, ballot drop boxes and things like that. But there's no doubt in terms of harvesting or ballot harvesting collection of ballots that can be done and is being done. But I don't think it's being done to the level that a lot of people think it's being done. Paul, you have a thought on ballot harvesting? I love talking about ballot delivery. I don't know what ballot harvesting is. It sounds like a, it's, it's okay. thin. Um, but so what's funny is my, my mom is a, a legal ballot harvester. Um, for a long time, my mom, uh, we had this neighbor who was elderly and didn't want to mail her ballot, but wanted my mom to take her ballot into the polling place for her. And so she would sign it and, you know, do everything right. And my mom, when she went down to the polling place, would drop hers and our neighbor's uh, ballot into the mailbox. And that actually isn't legal prior to the creation of the law that allowed for people to send in ballots or to turn in ballots for people that weren't related to them. It used to be that it was only people that were related to you, you could turn in ballots for. So um, I think that the ballot delivery law that we have is pretty sensible. Um, the ballot harvesting term has apparently stuck. I've even heard of advocates for ballot delivery calling it ballot harvesting. Um, my response to that phrase is that, I don't know if you've done this, Matt, but I've definitely driven a van around town and given people rides to the polls. Uh, we didn't call that people harvesting. Uh, we just- well, Not yet, but they might at some point. We're gonna have to start calling that people harvesting. Um, some things to key off of things that you talked about. Um, you're right that Republicans have said uh, both in 2020 in the general and they're saying now in polling, and I know a lot of people are tracking this, that they're going to vote later. 
uh, or they're going to vote at the polls. And about half of Republican voters actually say that they don't believe that their ballots would be, you know, effectively cast or that they would be tampered with if they voted by mail. So um, that kind of conspiracy theory um, really is kind of a thing that has the potential to, you know, shoot Republicans in the foot if uh, if those voters don't actually turn in their ballots. Or I'm, I'm, unaware, I'm unaware of winning candidates ever making that argument. Well, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it is, it's kind of crazy because the easiest way to vote is to vote with the ballot that's on your kitchen counter right now. Anybody who says, okay, here's our strategy. Don't vote with that ballot that you've got on your counter right now for the next 30 days. Hold on to it. Wait until this obscure Tuesday in the beginning of summer after your kids are from school and all this other stuff's going on. And then go to the, down to the library and vote in person. Um, that's not a winning strategy, but the challenge is that in the 2020 general, we didn't see a huge Republican drop off at the end. And I think it's because everybody knew that it was the election. It was wall to wall coverage. You know, the media was talking about it. Your friends were talking about it. Everything was about it being election day. That's not going to be true in the primary. Uh, there's not going to be as a, as much of a sense of like, oh, here's election day. I need to go vote. And if people have not mailed in their ballots, I think there is a greater opportunity for them to kind of underperform. And it could have impacts like you're talking about, Matt, in these in determining who gets into the top two. Um, you could have some situations like the um, there was an assembly race down in uh, San Diego, South Orange County, where Democrats realized in 2020, um, hey, the way the polling looks, we might actually be able to slip two Democrats into the runoff. And so they went and strategically played that in order to kind of box out Republicans. We could see some of that. We are seeing also what you've talked about with Democrats and Republicans trying to like pick their opponents. Um, the Robert Garcia race is a, a perfect example of this. Robert Garcia is outspending. Uh, Christina Garcia has raised a lot more money. By four to one. And, huh? By four to one. It, well, what a lot of people don't realize is there's only one Republican on that ballot and not a lot of Republican voters. But um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of that Robert Garcia money or funding from independent expenditures is kind of reminding voters about what a horrible Trump supporter this one Republican is and making sure that that message gets to Republican households just to try to eke him into that second spot we could have a situation where we don't have the Garcia versus Garcia race that everybody's expecting there. Um, and your last message was about homelessness. Uh, the LA mayor's race is one that I think this is really pivotal in. Uh, the polling we've looked at in LA shows that three quarters of voters who are supporting Rick Caruso say that their number one reason they're doing it is over the issue of homelessness. And that's going to be something where whoever gets in the runoff, which likely be Karen Bass, um, uh, they're going to have to try to figure out a way to address that issue and cut down on that advantage that he has in the messaging. Hey, Paul, I have an old friend of mine, David McEwen, who asked us a questionnaire. He's a professor at Sonoma State, and he's asking about dem-on-dem -dem violence over in the uh, insurance commissioner's race. And I think he's Laura Levine over there. And I know that Sonoma State has is near the Le former Levine Assembly District. Do you have any thoughts on that race or what's going on over there? Um, I think that uh, 
I think that Lara's obviously going to be the top vote getter uh, in that race. And it's going to be a challenge to see if Levine can come through and into that second spot. It's possible that we'll have a Dem on Dem insurance commissioner race there. Uh, but it will come down to how the other, you know, candidates fare there and whether or not, you know, really, I think it's going to come down to whether or not Levine can get into that second spot. I think people oftentimes, I'll just add on that insurance commissioner race, you know, legislators oftentimes feel that their name ID is far greater throughout the state than it really is. And when you're a Sacramento County DA or a um, assembly member from the North Coast, your name ID in Los Angeles is probably lower than Paul Mitchell's. And, and so um, that's just the reality of it. And, and a lot of legislators have a very inflated view of what their name ID is out there in the world. Yeah. Um, that's absolutely true. I also think, and you mentioned it, the AG's race with Emory Schubert. Um, I think Emory Schubert kind of got the Dan Schnur disease where um, Dan Schnur felt like, hey, this is an office where voters aren't just interested in the partisan answers and they want to actually have real solutions and they want to vote for an independent and I'm that person. And, you know, Dan Schnur came in fourth and I think that's essentially where Emory Schubert is headed in, in this AG's race. Um, and I think that the fault was in that race, thinking from the outset that in a statewide ballot with all these names that you could effectively message as an independent enough to overcome that lack of a ballot designation. It happened, Poisoner was able to make it into a runoff, but it's because there was no Republican on the ballot. And he had previously been elected statewide as a Republican. Um, but I don't see, I don't know about you, Matt, I don't see anybody winning in, you know, getting into the top two in a competitive field uh, as an independent in California, unless they are some like super celebrity. Um, yeah, probably true. And then, you know, even, even at the legislative and congressional level, I, I'm trying to think of somebody who actually ran from the outset as an independent and was successful. I mean, people say, well, what about Chad Mays? But he was actually originally elected as a Republican. Even Quentin Kopp was originally a Democrat, wasn't he? Was he an independent at some point? Lucy Calais became an independent, but she was clearly a Democrat when she started. Um, there ha that path hasn't been really um, well-traveled in the past. And Chad only made it to the runoff, right, because of the candidates that were on the ballot. He wouldn't have... I don't, I don't know that, but you know, he was certainly had incredible name ideas as a result of being in the assembly and running in that exact seat, as opposed to yeah. running as independent from a relatively small base within it. Um, so we've got um, uh, another question. So I, on the AG race, I should just tell you all, I'm working with Nathan Hockman for that. And I'm, I'm really inter interested to see the outcome of that race because you know the Bonta campaign is really the only thing that's going for Eric Early. If you look at their expenditures, they're clearly doing more to advertise for Eric Early than he would on his own. And you know that outcome is one of our, well, our anonymous attendees asked the question about what's gonna happen in that race. Paul, our anonymous attendee also asked about controller, and you were mentioning some of that yesterday. What are your thoughts on the controller race? Um, the uh, So what's interesting in the controller's race is you've got, again, like you were mentioning, you've got a, a Bay Area assembly member uh, who's running in Steve, Steve Glazer. Um, you have LA candidate, Ron Galperin, who uh, is controller of LA. And I don't know why, Maybe it was a legal issue, but if I was Ron Galperin, I'd make my ballot designation controller and that's it instead of controller city of Los Angeles slash attorney, which 
you know, I would have just like tried to milk that sense of an incumbent uh, for the ballot designation there. Uh, Malia Cohen, uh, another Democrat running. But I think the dark horse in this field right now is uh, Yvonne Yu, who's a Democrat running, and that she and uh, the Republican candidate Chen are probably the most likely to to make the runoff. Um, so, Paul, on that, um, you know, Hughes has raised six million dollars, which is more than the rest of the Democratic field combined. I mean, Glazer's at about uh, 2.6, Galpern's at 1 million, and Cohn's at 1.6. She's clearly spending way more on voter contact than anyone else. I also think there's just this advantage. Um, California voters have shown that they know what type of candidate that they want to support in a race like controller and state treasurer. And we've had Asian office holders in those offices, uh, you know, a history now of that and a pattern. And the, when we were talking about shortcuts that people use on the ballot, you can look at people who go and they identify who the incumbent is and they say, oh, well, maybe I'm okay with what's going on in this area. So I'll vote with the incumbent. They look at the partisan designation, and they also look at the race or ethnicity of candidates. You know this, Matt, from the work that you and I both have done in racially polarized voting analysis. And it does seem as though that this is one of those instances where, um, you know, both the the two Asian candidates from the Democratic and Republican side are the ones that seem to be in kind of some of that early polling, looking like they're making it into the runoff. Now, we could see either three of those other candidates, uh, Galper and Cohen or, or uh, Glazer making to the runoff as well. Um, but, you know, that's you a think lot they of could, you think they could You think they could box out Chen, who's got the whole yeah. Republican field all to himself? Chen's, I don't think there's Chen's a, a lock. I think Chen's a lock to make it in. It's just Chen a matter a lock. He, He's Asian and very qualified, and he's, you know, he's raised quite a bit of money. I think the only question is who he runs against. Yeah, and I think most voters we'll be surprised if you is the winner. And a lot of people who are kind of like insiders or who think they're insiders might uh, be surprised when she wins, if well, that's I, what happens. Well, see, I think that same thing's happening down in SD 16 and we don't have to get into districts too much, but I think a lot of people in Sacramento just assume that Nicole Parra is gonna win that seat. And I don't think that's the case at all. I think Melissa Hurtado is gonna bury her. I, you know, I will be conflicted out on that since I used to be Nicole's chief of staff. All right. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm working with David Shepard down there, but I just, in terms of talking about Sacramento views, I think it's very different sometimes than what we see in the field. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think we definitely have a lens in Sacramento um, and, you know, that is distorted. Uh, our sense of how real voters think about things uh, is often very distorted from our own personal experience and then our own circle of people that we chit chat back and forth with. I'm sure Matt, you and I, since we talk, we probably have some really strongly held beliefs that are just absolutely wrong. Oh, I'm sure that's true. Well, you're you're wrong more than me, but yes, you're definitely right. Hey, Richard Markinson wants to know why we have so many candidates for governor. Because it's easy to file for governor, right? You can forever say I was a candidate for governor. Yeah. Um, I, a question for you, Matt. Why do we have these guys like Greg Conlon and uh, uh, I guess Eric Early is also a repeat candidate? You have these candidates who run every time. You know, there's um, there is something that uh, infects people. It's different than the coronavirus or the lawn sign virus that people have, but they just want to run for office. And some people have no expectation of winning. They just like having their name on the ballot. And so they run. I don't know why that is, but it just happens.
I mean, Steve Fox ran for, he's run for office like 30 times um, uh, down in the Antelope Valley and he just keeps going. Yep, that happens. In so, the congressional uh, races, there's a, uh, a guy who's running in the um, Garcia congressional race that is, was, is, was running so long ago, I'm trying to think of his name, Pete or something, uh, he has been running for so long for Congress that uh, one of his campaign staff was Dustin Corcoran in uh, when he was a community college student. It was his professor running for Congress. And I think he's run for Congress every election cycle since then. And that was back in like 94 or something. So one of our commenters talked about, uh, mentioned that or corrected me that COP um, changed after his first election, but I don't know whether that's true or not, but it may be. And that uh, they're saying that Mays won um, as an MPP because of IE support. I know that that's true, that he got a lot. Um, and then Robert Naylor, he's reminding us that uh, um, Governor Reardon was uh, prevented from making the runoff when um, Gray Davis stepped in to be able to pick his opponent uh, way back when. And Chris Myers reminds us that it's Peter Matthews who has been the perennial candidate down in that Long Beach congressional district. That's important to know. That's good trivia right there. That's probably um, the most press he's gotten this cycle. So, um, and, and Darren Gale, who's an assistant city manager from down in the, uh, in the Delta area in Brentwood is asking about local government elections and, and bond measures and stuff for local governments. And I'll tell you that, um, you know, I've been wrong. Paul will remind me on several things I've been wrong about. I actually thought a lot of school bonds would have gone down during uh, November of 2020, just based on schools response to COVID and voters being frustrated. And I was wrong that a lot of them passed all over the state in, in November uh, of 2020. And I can't tell you that I have a lot of uh, really good data points to reference regarding um, school and local government bonds and how people feel about them. The only thing that I would add, though, is that in low turnout elections and like a gubernatorial election where the governor I, you know, is highly favored to win and there's not a lot of excitement, that's usually really bad for local government bonds where you're trying to raise tax increases because the anti-tax Republicans represent a larger um, sector of the electorate than they do in a, in a highly uh, high turnout presidential election like we had in 2020 or 2016. Paul, you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's totally right. I think that there is kind of this lens like you're talking about in 2020. You're like, OK, what's well, going to be high turnout? But voters really are, you know, unhappy with the schools or they, you know, might not be feeling that in terms of finances based on the economy or whatever other kind of issue. And then there's just literally like what voters are showing up and, you know, generally good Editorials aren't appealing because they have that lower turn. That thing I talked about originally with the lower turnout from renters and young people and minorities that are more the base of those uh, of support for bond measures. Um, but 2018 or 2022 general, we don't know what is going to be the driving issue. And um, I suspect uh, that uh, there will be a statewide ballot measure uh, regarding a constitutional protection for women's right to choose and constitu constitutional protection for uh, abortion. If that's the case, and that is a driving issue around the country, which I expect it might be, then maybe you do have really inflated turnout from kind of those base Democratic voters that could help carry those and other issues kind of across the finish line. But it's kind of still too early to tell um, what the environment's going to be in November. So, Paul, we have a question here about the um, Young Kim seat down in um, in Orange County, and I'll to offer my thoughts on that. So, 
I think Young Kim's seat is actually a really good one for her in terms of the way that seat was drawn. I think she um, probably was one of the winners of congressional redistricting out there. I know that I think the um, uh, one of the reports from Washington, D.C. today moved her seat from a um, solid Republican to a lean Republican or something like that. Um, I just feel strongly that she's highly likely to be reelected and that seat is a, a perfect fit for her, especially in 2022. Uh, and actually, I, for her, I think that it likely continues on for, for many years. The demographics aren't shifting that quickly in that inland district. But similar to a lot of other seats in California, um, or dissimilar to some of those seats, I think there's a lot of seats in California where Republicans can win in 2022 under the, the current circumstances. But going forward after 2024, I think it's far more of a challenge. you have any thoughts on that, Paul? So this one's interesting because when we think about Orange County from a redistricting perspective, um, you have the Katie Porter seat, which is like Irvine Coastal. You've got the Santa Ana Majority Minority Latino District. You have this new district that's kind of a crescent-shaped district that goes from Garden Grove into Cerritos Artesian up to Fullerton. Those three districts and the way that they're drawn and the way that at least one is 100% locked to be Democratic Another one is the Katie Porter seat, which is drawn as a way to really give Democrats a great shot. And the third one, that Asian crescent-shaped seat, is a Michelle Steele seat. I think it might be a little hard for Democrats to pick that up in a gubernatorial cycle, but in a presidential cycle, maybe we could pick that up. Now, those three districts set up like that. The, the, the Kim seat is basically a Republican vote sink. Like, Let's shove as many Republicans into that Kim seat as possible to make those other seats more Democratic. So when people started talking about the Kim seat being competitive, I was like, well, I mean, I don't think anybody who was watching the redistricting was really doing anything but crossing their fingers, hoping that more Republicans could go in the Kim seat, just like more Republicans could go into the McCarthy seat. Oh, yeah, I remember so, that pretty well, Paul. I was yeah, pain. You're welcome. So uh, the interesting thing is now Kim is spending half a million dollars or the NRCC is against Greg Raths, who's another one of these perennial candidates. And my question maybe for you, Matt, is, uh, you know, I think that the Democrat is going to come out as a top vote getter because Republicans are going to split that vote. I don't know that she could really lose to Raths in the primary. Maybe you've seen something on that. Um, but I do think that if Rafts gets close to beating her in a primary, then in 2024, the knives are going to be out. You might have Rafts light Republican with flawed, some money. Rafts is an incredibly flawed candidate. That guy's not going to get elected. What's that? I mean, that's the question. Is she kind of spending money now to avoid having to have a real challenger in 24? Well, I, I actually, I, I think you guys we're almost out of time right now. So, Matt, you got 30 seconds. Um, we got uh, 12 days left. I'll be happy when it's over. I would encourage everyone to keep an eye on um, whether the Democrats play to pick their Republican to run against will pay off because if it does pay off. And I know that uh, uh, Bob Naylor mentioned it before. It's not like it's a new strategy, but it's a bold strategy that's playing out for assembly, congressional and, and statewide races around the state. Yeah. And, and it's a strategy, Matt, that you helped invent back in 2014 with some races that you did to try to help make sure that the right candidates make the runoff. It is an old strategy, but it is one that is evolving. And I'm surprised to see how many places I see it being played out. It's, it's becoming kind of a stock part of strategy in California nowadays. 
Well, on that happy note, we will say thank you very much for participating. And we thank the people putting questions and our viewers here. A lot of great questions uh, today. So thank you both very much, Matt, Paul. And uh, we'll talk to you folks next time around. Thanks again. See you, John. Be safe. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.